marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Such a classic, classic clip from a classic film. But I wonder if that is true. Does marriage bring us together today? I mean, is that still true after 34 years? Can you believe that movie came out 34 years ago? It does not feel that long ago. But I don't think it's true. I don't think marriage does bring us together today. As I've read and studied and looked and observed, it seems more true now for me in my lifetime that marriage has, is a dividing wall for a lot of people. Uh, our politicians, leaders on different sides really divide on marriage. Democrats and Republicans are on opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to the definition, the benefits, the legal guidelines of marriage. More and more parents are raising children without getting married. According to a Pew Research study, single-parent homes rose from 13% to 25% from 1968 to 2017. And I know that's 50 years, which is a long time, feels like a long time, 50 years. But the trajectory of our culture is that marriage is no longer important. And I just have to say on the outset... I don't think statistics is really what the church needs, you know, necessarily, but I want someone to do their homework. You know what I mean? I want someone to understand our neighbors and our culture and the people around us, and I want to know what's actually true in our community, what's actually true in Kansas. What are people really believing? How are people really acting? What are people really saying about marriage? I, uh, before the first service this morning, a, a sweet lady came up to me and she's like, oh, are you preaching? Because I had the headset on and I was like, yeah, I'm preaching. She's like, oh, I'm so excited. And, and I know it's wrong to lie, but I feel like in those times it's okay, you know, so you just keep that coming. But uh, she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're preaching today. And I was like, I don't know. She's like, what are you preaching on? I said, you don't want me to tell you. She's like, no, no, I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm preaching it's not all about it, but I am preaching on marriage. And then you know that, that passage in Genesis 4 where Cain's face fallen, his countenance fell? That's, that's what it was. Uh, and I know that there are some people in here that are not married. Some people have been married. Some people have experienced different things with marriage. But marriage is important to God. It's not important to our culture, though. I did uh, the research. Do you know, as of 2019, of 130 countries and territories, the United States leads the world in the rate of single-parent homes? There are more single-parent homes uh, in, as a rate, a percentage, in the United States than 130 other countries and territories. Cohabitation of romantic partners is rising. Young adults are waiting longer and longer before... Uh, getting married. Uh, other results uh, from the Pew Research Center, uh, the same actual study, showed that 60% of adults in America believe that unmarried couples can raise children just as well as married couples. Now, I just want you to think about that. 60%, they say 
marriage is not important for raising children. That's what they're saying. Only 17% believe marriage is essential to live a fulfilling life compared to an enjoyable career. 57% of adults say an enjoyable career, that's what it really takes to live a good life. 17% believe that marriage is, is good. I read a proverb that said, marriage is like a besieged castle. Those who are on the outside want to get in and those who are on the inside want to get out. And I don't know whether you want to get in or out. I pray that you want to stay in if you're in one. And I pray that God moves you from this place to be an advocate and supporter of his view on marriage. I will say again, though, marriage is not essential for man and woman. It's not the highest fulfillment for a man and woman. Being Christ-like is. So if you're not married, it's not like marriage is the next step up in, in fulfillment of life. That's not true. But you could do the research for yourself, and I know I'm live, I'm on TV, you can uh, check me. I'm going to give you all the resources that I looked up, and, and uh, you guys take notes if you want. According to the United States Census Bureau, the National Center for Health Statistics, the Pew Research Center, the Institute for Family Studies, and the Population Reference Bureau, a majority of adults under the age of 50 in America believe that marriage is not essential for raising children, it's not essential for a fulfilling life, it's not essential for career success, and it's also not essential for sexual satisfaction. Now the big question is why? Why is part of the design of marriage, according to God's view, not considered important to us? Marriage is not only seen as not essential for a lot, it's, seen, it's not even seen as good. But is that God's fault? Is it God's fault in the way that he designed marriage because he created it? He's the one who instituted it. He's the one who led the first man and woman. Even if you've never been in church before, I know you've heard the story of the first man and the first woman that God brought together, the first marriage, the first wedding. Is it God's fault that marriage is seen in such a bad light? You know, maybe... Maybe preachers haven't done a good job at this in the last 50 years. Maybe you guys haven't been teaching your children God's view of marriage, the biblical view. Maybe all they see at home is the negative and the hurt and the pain of marriage. I grew up in a marriage like that. My parents divorced when I was nine. So if this is important to God, this should be important to us. Because in the Bible... God says that marriage is good. In the New Testament, Paul writes that marriage is good. Now, he also writes in that same paragraph that singleness is good, and it's a gift from God. Some of you, God has called to be single, and it's a wonderful thing, but it's also good if God has called you to marry. And so marriage is not meant to be uh, a negative thing. It's not meant to be a bad thing. So I want to look in the Scriptures in the beginning uh, you know, our culture right now, this is, some of you guys are not going to get this, but I know a lot of you will. Some of you younger, of course, will. There is a big push to build a smart home, isn't there, some of you young people? Every device, you need to automate your home. Your garage, hey, let's say you're on holiday in Paris. You know what you need to do? You need to be able to shut your garage from your phone if you need to. You need apps in every room in your house. The lights need to be different colors. You need to be able to automate everything. And the big push now is you need to have a smart home. 
That's what you really need because it's so convenient and it's automatic. Well, if Jesus were here and he was telling you, this is how I want you to build a home, this is what's important to me, I want to look at the scriptures and see what does God say it takes to build a home, a house, a family. And so I want to look at the beginning where God first established marriage, and it's on day six of creation. God creates days one, two, three, four, five, and he says, it's good. It's good that he made all these things. Then day six, he makes Adam and says this in verse 18 in Genesis chapter two. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. So God has been saying, hey, everything I've been making is good. The light is good. The waters are good. The dry land is good. The stars and the sun and moon are good. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea, these are really, these are great. These are good. And then all the beasts on the land and Adam is good. But one thing, there's a caveat. God changes the story on day six and says, there's something that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So what does he mean when he uses the word helper? God says, I'm going to make man a helper. Helper means someone that supplies strength where it's needed, someone that supplies service where there is none. And so it's a simple word. It's just someone who helps. That's what God wanted for Adam. And the word fit means uh, complementary, someone corresponding to him. So don't think of like, Uh, a pair of apples that are the same thing. Don't think of a pair, think of a puzzle. You know how two puzzles are intentionally different, but they fit together uh, perfectly? That's the idea of fit. God wanted to make Adam a helper fit for him. And so what does God do? Uh, God is so funny. He doesn't want man to mess it up. So verse 19, you almost think this is an interruption in Genesis 2. He says, now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, why is, G- why is God doing this? Why is he bringing animals to Adam when he figures out Adam needs a helper? And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, this is the key, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So what does God do? God doesn't come to Adam and say, Adam, come here, we need a huddle. Okay, listen, it's not good for you to be alone. God doesn't work that way. Instead, he shows him. He gives him a job. Men are so good with this. They learn better on the job. And so he says, Adam, come here, come here. I want you to name all of the animals and the birds. And Adam's like, I could do that, I'm Adam. And so the birds start lining up, the animals start lining up, and he goes, oh, there's there's a boy sheep and there's a girl sheep. There's a boy bird and there's a girl bird. Uh, there's a boy, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bull and Mrs. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, cow. Uh, I actually knew I was preaching on this before I got up here. Uh, so he goes through and then all of a sudden Adam, who probably thinks it's his idea, is like, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, okay, okay. two, 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 two. Everyone else has a, has a companion. Everyone else has a helper. There's a boy chicken and a girl chicken, and there's a boy this and a girl that. Everyone else, hey, I don't have a thing. I need a helper fit for me. I need someone that's going to be a companion. So, so Adam, like men do, think it was his idea, 
And, and so God's like, not your idea. So what does God do? You're going to mess it up. You're going to sleep. So God puts Adam to bed. And then he decides, uh, verse 21, so the Lord caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And if you've heard a sermon on this, it's so good. You know, they're like, he didn't take it from Adam's head so that the woman was over him. He didn't take it from Adam's feet so that he would just walk all over. He took it from his ribs so it's like equal, medium size right there in the middle. And preachers make all kinds of great things up about this. And if you go to Israel and ask them, hey, what does rib mean? They're like, rib, what's the point of that? We don't know. No one knows for sure. We just know that God was like taking ribs, which I actually think is great. Who doesn't love ribs? If you go to Kansas City, there's a great place that bears my name, Jack Stacks. It is so good. You could get pork ribs. They're amazing. Dry rub. Don't get the sauce yet. If you want to, you can go ahead. It is so good. In so I don't know why God picked ribs, and some people think they do know, and maybe they do. I don't know. But God decided, you're going to bed. I'm taking a rib, and he fashions a woman out of it. And so... The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, right? He's like, this is what I did. Dude, I was counting all the animals. They all, now this is it. This, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one's like me. This one's like me. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. So the Hebrew word for man is ish. Uh, for woman, it's isha. And so it just means out of man. And so the, not very creative, right? Adam was like the rest of us. I know he's perfect, but not that perfect. He's just like us. He's like, I don't know. You're out of a man. That's what you are. And so he names her woman. And then verse 24 is, is the one that, you know, I don't, I don't know that we've preached this enough. We've all heard the leave, cleave, and weave. But our kids obviously don't. They don't know it. Why is our culture failing so bad when it comes to God's view of marriage? We hear verse 24, therefore. And that's really good because in God's Bible, in his word, in his authoritative, inspired, and errant revelation to us, this is the first place where you have a therefore. God is bringing all his creation together and saying, therefore, I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing. Look at what I'm making Therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's so much truth just in those two verses. And you get the classic structure. You get the, the man shall leave, then he cleaves to his wife. If you're the King James Version, even New King James, I think, uses that, cleaves. And then you've heard the third step, weave. You have the leave, cleave, and weave. That was part of the design. But I want to take a step back from the leave, cleave, and weave. It's great. Use it. Repeat it. It's memorable. But I want you to think, God is setting up for you the design that he had. He wants you and me to understand what he's doing. He doesn't always explain it, right? On day four and five, he doesn't explain the sun, the moon, and the stars. He doesn't explain the fish and the birds. He does not do that, but he does it here. He wants us to get a glimpse into why he's doing this. So we find the classic structure. What is God's design for marriage? Why did God even create marriage? Why did he insist on marriage? And so you have a four-point design that we'll see in this passage and then one in Ephesians. Number one, marriage is designed for one man and one woman. 
You have to start here. It's so important. It's important in our culture today. I know it's an argument that no one wants to have. I know it's difficult. I know some of you, like me, have family members that are homosexuals, family members that believe that there should be same-sex marriages. I understand all of that. It doesn't change God's word. Marriage was designed for one man, one woman. Look at verse 34. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God designed it for a man and a woman to come together. And some of you may not be aware, but the attack on marriage really began in our culture 50 years ago, in 1970. Now, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I've done a lot of study on this as much as I can, but I come up short. I'm just giving you an outline, very brief. I'm skipping a lot of parts. If you know things about Hawaii and Alaska and the appellate court and things that happened interspersed, there's a lot of dates that I'm missing. I want to give you a shortened version of what's happened since 1970 to where we are today in our culture, not because I want to talk about the culture, but these are our neighbors that God has called us to love. We need to understand what people are thinking and why they're thinking it. So let me just give you a brief outline of how our country has decided it shouldn't be about one man and one woman. In 1970, this is all true factual things, in 1970, a same-sex couple in Minnesota applied for a marriage license, first time ever, and they were denied at the court, and their case went to the state Supreme Court. Every state has a Supreme Court, not the United States Supreme Court, but every state has a Supreme Court. It went to the state. That was in 1970. A few things happened, but nothing truly happened legally that opened the door until 1989. This is almost 20 years later, 19 years later. The court rulings in New York and California, I don't know why it's always them, but there are a lot in this. New York and California, they defined same-sex couples as families. That's all they did. They just said, hey, we need to call them families too. And sadly, in 1989, a lot of Christians said, well, we want to be nice. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be this. We don't. We'll just let them have families. I mean, that's kind of like a family. We're brothers and sisters. We're all families. No big deal. And so they said, fine. And so New York and California is like, same-sex couples, they're just families. That's all they did. And it grew from there. In 1992, same-sex employees began to receive domestic partner benefits Legally, they got the same benefits from Levi Strauss and Company and the state of Massachusetts. So Levi's, like the jeans, the company that was primarily focused on rural farming, Midwest-type cowboys, these cowboys didn't know that the owners of that were pro-homosexual, and they decided to be one of the first companies to say they deserve the same benefits. And the state of Massachusetts, which really has nothing to do with Levi's at the time, decided we're making this a law in the Northeast. This is what we want. Then in 1996, there was a little bit of a stop. President Clinton uh, signed the Defense of Marriage Act. It's called DOMA, if you've ever heard it, into federal law. It was a big deal in 1996. And he said, listen, you can't say that a same-sex couple is married like other married in any state. Uh, you can't force them to believe that. And so there's a little bit of a holdup. And then 15, I'm skipping a lot, 15 years later, in 2011, President Obama declared DOMA unconstitutional. And that same year, New York legalized same-sex marriage. A lot of things happened in 2011, people don't know about. And so they flooded. They went to go get married. And then in 2015, one of the biggest cases mentioned, the U.S. Supreme Court made same-sex marriages legal in 
all 50 states. They said it's unconstitutional not to. And it was in the case Obergefell versus Hodges. Basically what happened, there was a same-sex couple that uh, said one got terminally ill and he said, hey, I want to marry you before I die, but they couldn't do it in their state. So they went to another state, they got married, they came back, he died. And then, he's, and then the court said, uh, you don't have any rights to his stuff and his money. And he said, boy, I want that guy's money. And then they got other people involved in the case and they said, you guys can't deny us our legal rights. It went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court in 2015 decided, you know what, this is good in our country. And I want to read to you from the majority uh, decision, because it was, I think it was five to four, if I remember correctly, the majority piece that was written on this from the United, Supreme, uh, United States Supreme Court judges, this is what they said. This is a quote. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Keep that in mind. This is how the world is approaching this. And we need to know this as Christians. And some of you in here don't even agree with the Bible, and you need to know this. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea, same-sex couples, their plea is that they do respect it. As a matter of fact, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions, grounded in the Bible, they ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Now, there is the skin of a true stuff with a lie in this, and I want you to not be ignorant. I want you to understand there is a lot of truth in what is said. What the position is saying is, listen, if you don't let individuals decide what marriage really is and allow marriage to go outside of what God created to be, these people are going to feel condemned. They're going to feel excluded from society. And you know what? That's true. That is true. And it's sad that any human being would feel condemned and excluded. And so they say they're excluded. They're condemned. You can't say they don't have the same legal rights as another man and woman that gets married. You need to give them the same. And guess what? The Constitution gives them that right. And so the decision from our country's highest court is that marriage should not and cannot be upheld as God designed it because for those that disagree with God say that they will feel condemned if we don't change marriage into what we want. So if you, if you look at the, uh, the position, it's not, that they're dis, it's not that we're saying they're disrespecting marriage. You know what it is? They're redefining it. The issue is not that people want to disrespect marriage. It's that they want to change what it was. And guess what? Marriage does not belong to you and me because we are not the owners of marriage. We did not create marriage. God created marriage. And if you read the Bible, it's so clear. Sin gives birth to death. It kills people. It destroys lives. It hurts you in the long run. And so for every Christian, I want you to hear this because not everyone in here agrees, even right now, and I know that. If you dismiss God's clear revelation and his word on marriage and you call evil good and good evil, you're going to have to answer before God for that. And you are not fighting for Jesus you're not fighting for love. I, this is not the time to get into it. The banner and the slogan nowadays is, let love be love. 
Love is love. Stop trying to redefine love biblically. Love is just accepting every viewpoint there is. That's not true. Love is not accepting sin as good. It's not calling sin good. And so you will give an account for what you support and encourage and accept as what God says is right when it comes to marriage. I can't do that for you. My prayer is actually a revival will start in central Kansas and that Grace Community Church will be the loudest and the most loving beacon of light when it comes to family, that a revival would come from healthy marriages, healthy families, healthy kids that are understanding what God called good is good and what God called evil is evil. I believe God will make an impact, not just in Newton, but in all of central Kansas through this one church if we support his word, if we fight for what he says is right. So, I know that's heavy, I know that's serious, I know I'm not smiling yet, but that's the truth. Marriage was designed for one man and one woman. God designed it that way, and there's no room for anyone else. He says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that's God's second point. God's design for marriage is that it only supports one couple. There's only room for one couple In a smart home, God's home, you have the master bedroom. The only people allowed in the master bedroom in God's design is a husband and a wife, and that's it. You have to leave your father and mother. Now, I thought about not sharing this because I'm recording. I'm I'm being recorded right now. But 10 years ago, uh, at least, I think it was around 10 years ago, a little older than my son, my firstborn, uh, me and my beautiful newlywed wife were staying at the in-law's house. And we're at the in-law's house, and Mrs. In-law comes in and says, Jack, you and your bride are going to this thing. And I had already said, we're not going to that said thing. And so she put me in a predicament. Now, I didn't conceal carry at the time, so I was a little scared. Uh, but mom-in-law said, you guys are going. And she got loud. She got loud, and she can get loud. And so I made a decision. It was live or die. And I said, no. I'm the husband, I'm the father, or not the father, I'm the husband, she is my wife, we decide as one couple, one family what we're going to do, and I stood my ground, and um, she didn't talk to me for a few years, and then now we have a wonderful, beautiful relationship, it's so great, I love her so much, I just, I actually, she was here this summer, and I wish she lived with us, she just is such a great Grammy, and she's so wonderful. Uh, By the way, young adults, I know when you have your first kids, and you think of mom and dad, and you think, hey, you know, we don't need you kind of a little bit of that tinge. I make the decision. Listen, be gracious and gentle with them. Don't be hard on them. Uh, they love you and they're wiser than you. My mother-in-law, I should have gone, but at that point I'd already put my, you know when you put your foot down and you're like, I can't pick this foot up. I can't. I can't go back because then she's the boss and I can't do that. There's only one winner on this hill. And so I wish I would have been more mature about it. I wish I would have been different about it. But There is a biblical pattern and a stance in which a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You have to let go. In marriage, you can't have your mom and dad poisoning and causing a wedge between you and your spouse. That's not what God designed, and he makes it so clear here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man leaves his father and mother. At some point, you have to say, now listen, we are there, you are not an authority over us anymore. We love you. You supported us. We, we owe you so much. But we must, we must make the decisions. And parents, I have not walked this road, so this is a, 
It's not condescending, and, and I hope it's not uh, hurtful to you. I just speak from the scriptures. You know, when, you're, when your kids, when they have kids and they're growing up, you got to let them go. I can't tell you how many marriage counseling sessions I've had where the wife is like, yeah, and my mom and my dad, and they, they really want to say this, and it's causing a little riff, and we're trying to be nice to them, but they want to have control. They want to tell us what to do. Listen, I feel like, you know when Moses went to Pharaoh in the movie and he's like, let my people go? I feel like that. I feel like, parents, you've got to let your kids be adults and they are their own authority and there's nothing more God on, well, there is more God honoring things, but this is also God honoring when parents tell a daughter or a son, you guys are married now, you've got to figure this out together. This is your husband, you submit to him. You don't do what dad says anymore. You do, you have you have a new head. I'm no longer the head of your home. Your husband is the head of your home. And so it only supports one couple. You got to leave your father and mother. Uh, God's design for marriage is for one man and one woman to come together in one sacred union. And part of the design is so that they would have intimacy. Intimacy. God's design for marriage was intimacy. I like one teacher said, um, intimacy, if you break down the word, it's like, into me, see. Intimacy is about vulnerability and trust and togetherness. That's part of God's design. He wants there to be an openness. And, um, you know, I've got my kids here, and I know some of you have your kids here. Intimacy is far greater and deeper than romance. I know you know that, but don't we all need to be reminded of that? This summer, I learned new truths about intimacy, and I learned it in the ICU room. You know, when someone's pretty and you like them and you want to get married to them and you're attracted to them, and you're like, oh, I'm so in love. I'm just head over heels, you know. There's, there's something to that. It's special. God has kind of given that to us. But intimacy, when you are helping someone do something uh, gross that they can't do for themselves, when some of, someone you love can't go to the bathroom, can't feed themselves, can't do certain things, and you stand there next to them and, and they know, without you having to say words but by your actions, till death do us part, in sickness and in health, in richness and poor, no matter what, I am right here by your side. You will count on me forever. Amen. That's Intimacy. That's the kind of intimacy that God wants. Now, we dads need to do a better job at teaching our sons this, and not just through, you know, boys really learn well through examples, and we need to show them what intimacy really is outside of that, and that's for another sermon, but God designed marriage for intimacy. God designed marriage for one man, one woman to come together in one sacred union, enjoying intimacy, but more importantly, showing the world what the love of God looks like. I think the ultimate purpose for marriage, as you read it in the scripture, is not to bear children. And it's not even just for intimacy, although that reflects the Trinity and the love that God has for the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's that closeness, that oneness. But it's to show the world the love of God. I want to show you this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, wives, submit to your husbands, here's the qualifier, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Those are such big words. Why does God make such a big deal of this? 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. It tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That speaks more than romance, talking about intimacy. This mystery is profound, right? What an understatement. Paul's like, hey, and I know this is pretty profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Why does God make such a big deal of marriage? Why does he put such strong confines? Why does he make statements and commands like, as Jesus loved the church, you husbands love your wives. As, why, as the church submits to Christ, you wives love your husbands. Why does he make such a big deal of this? And, and he makes it so difficult. What's more difficult, husbands, than loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Dying for her, giving your whole self up for her? Is there something more difficult than that? Why does God make such a big deal? Here's why. It's in the passage. Because marriage is a living, walking, breathing illustration of God's love for us. That's what it's meant to be. It's the gospel. It's showing people the good news of Jesus loving the Christ or loving the church in such a way that he would die for it. Think about how Jesus, just for a moment, how did Jesus love you? Just think about it for just a brief moment. We won't have all the morning. How did Jesus show you his love? What did he do? Did he bring you flowers? Did he buy you a gift? Did he say nice words to you? Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And when he was being tortured, it says in the Bible that he did not utter a word to defend himself. Why? so that he could suffer and die for you. Has anyone else ever done that for you? They never sinned, and for your sake, they suffered and died, were lied about, had his beard plucked out, was scourged, carried a cross up a hill, so that he could eventually die on that cross. Jesus paid such a heavy price to love you, And now Jesus says, that's what marriage looks like. Husbands, that's how I want you to love your wives. I talk to husbands, and this has been helpful for me. I'm I'm not a perfect husband. I mess up all the time. But when husbands tell me she doesn't submit to me, she makes it so hard. My wife makes it difficult to me, right? Any husbands want to raise their, don't raise your hands. Any husbands want to raise your hands and say, oh, my wife just makes it so hard to love her. You don't know what she's been doing recently, the way she talks to me, and the way she treats me, the way she doesn't love me, fill in the blank. Makes it so hard. I always ask him this question. I know what that, it's real. It's real when someone doesn't love you. It's hard, okay? I hear you really getting loud about the word submit, like she's not submitting to me, she's not loving, okay, I hear that, okay. When she's like that, how much on a scale of 1 to 10 do you want to sacrifice for her? Just give me a number. Throw out a number. 1 to 10. In those moments, do you feel like sacrificing for her? Because guess what? You are first in line 
And when I hear a husband say, she's not being very submissive, what I also know in the background is, I bet you're not being very sacrificial either. It's hard to sacrifice when they're like that, isn't it? And guess what? God holds you accountable first. Don't push your wife to the front of the line and say, change her first. You're the guy. You're the man. You love your wives. So when we see a husband loving and leading his wife, it's so beautiful. It gives us a glimpse of Jesus loving his people and gladly sacrificing himself for them. It's God's way of evangelizing through demonstration. And when we see a wife lovingly honoring and submitting to her husband, as the Bible says, it gives us a glimpse of how God designed the church to be with Jesus. It gives us a picture, a living picture. And that's God's desire. That's his design. And I'm telling you, there is not a more influential factor or unit in the world as the family because the family is at the center of where the church is. You show me a church with unhealthy families, I will show you an unhealthy church. You show me a church with healthy, biblically-minded and submitted families, automatically I know you have a biblically-minded, well-done, healthy church. Grace. We are called by God to be that living example, to be that picture. So today, we looked at God's design for marriage. Next week, I want to warn you in preparation, we are going to look at the dance of marriage. Now, you that have younger kids that are not ready, you haven't read the Jim Burns books to them yet, and I suggest you go on Amazon and order those right away and talk to your kids. Uh, Next week, we are going to hear some things that are sensitive, not graphic, but are real and true. And we're actually going to hear a testimony of a couple in our own community that almost lost their marriage. And next week, we're going to look at the dance of marriage. I hope your children come, and I have little kids, and I know what it takes to have conversations and to work through that. But I want you to know, we're going to talk about some pretty serious, real things next Sunday. I want you to come. I want you to be praying for your kids. I want you praying for your grandkids. And um, order some Jim Burns books. They're so good. They're so wonderful to, as a conversation starter. And um, I want to pray. I want to pray for us. I'm actually going to kneel, and I'm going to invite you. You can kneel with me if you want. You do not have to do this. This is just an invitation. Heavenly Father, we love you and we kneel before you to honor you. I thank you so much for creating marriage. And even for those that are unmarried, I thank you for the living illustration to your good news and what that means. I pray and I want to ask a special request. Would you use our church to be the loudest and the most loving institution and organization in central Kansas in support of marriage, biblical marriage. Would you raise up families? We have so many resources here. Would you use us uniquely in this day and time to be an advocate and a supporter of biblical marriage? And would you please start a revival through us following and submitting to your word? I give myself to you. I will fight for your word till the death if it takes it. Would you help us be a church in this community to advocate your your design for marriage? And would you change lives? Start a revival here. I know you can. I know you will. 
if we follow you. So I pray, would you have mercy on us? Help Grace Community Church be a unique church that upholds biblical family and marriage, that it would help the next generations to come to know you. I know there's nothing more influential in a child's life than their parents. I know that. Would you have mercy and work through us? Help us to build godly marriages, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grace, we are the church. Now, let's go be the church. We are sent.